You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, September 30th, 2015, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, folks. Got a little bit of a Texas howdy from you this week. Yeah, I'm uh, thinking howdy yeah. might be a new... I'm going to try it out for a while. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> Every week, we get one week closer to the Star Wars release. You guys excited? Getting there. I, I The one thing that strikes me is... Because I'm... You know, I'm on my Halloween. I'm in Halloween mode, so I go. I'm going to a lot of Halloween stores, and I just see boatloads, boatloads of of Star Wars stuff all over the place. It's all over. It's it's incredible. So it's just going to ramp up from here. Yeah. The hardest part is not uh, paying attention to spoilers and these articles and other uh. things that are all over the place. It's like navigating a minefield for me. So I really have to avoid it how do people find out so soon i'm seeing spoilers for the martian everywhere and i'm going on thursday and it's bumming me out that i'm having to not read any articles online so you guys i mean I, i'm i'm learning to be more of a star wars fan but you guys must be very careful about what you read well online. how many spoilers are really uh, real spoilers are out there at this point it's way too it, early i feel like this is the kind of movie though where people will literally steal scripts well, like they have okay. to keep stuff under lock and key you, the problem is you just don't know if it's a legit spoiler or speculation and yeah. you don't really know who made it up or what the deal is. So legitimate fans and legitimate websites are very good about saying, you know, spoiler alert type things. But you know mm-hmm. what What re- website is very dangerous is Reddit because there's just so many people commenting on there and you just don't know. So be, Serious? Yeah, you got to be careful. It, it's like you need a lightsaber to cut through all the BS. <laughs> 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 so we're we're going to be reviewing Star Wars when it comes out. We're thinking of just videotaping, doing a video review, and we're going to like watch the original movies and make a big deal out of it. Steve, so we're going to do what I'd like to do is I want to do a full movie review of episodes four, five, and six. Yeah, you could do that. You know, on I video. Think we, well, what pretty, I think we should do is we should review the franchise and then review the new movie when it comes out. That's what we should do. We should do that. That would be fun because it would give me a chance to like bone up a little bit. But also I will have a lot of questions. You know, things that you guys take for granted might not be fully clear to no, me. No, it's perfect because we, yeah. need, we need the outsider who is not, you know, doesn't uh, live and breathe the genre who can be like, we'll see the movie through fresh eyes. Totally. I have seen, you know, the three original Star Wars, but I haven't seen them Four, since five, I was a kid. Like when you see Star Wars. Yeah. You know, that's the last time all of my friends can quote every movie uh, verbatim. Yeah. But I, I live in the shadows of that. We'll fix that. Okay, Kara, yeah, you want to we'll hear something you. weird? What? My son's favorite character is Darth Vader. He, my two and a half yeah. year old. Like, like he identifies well, with Darth Vader. Well, yeah, because he kind of seems awesome. Like in the movie, he's awesome. He's big. He is he wears awesome. a mask. He's totally you know? awesome. Yeah, I could see that. And it's cool to be like well, the underdog. It's cool to be like the kid who likes the... The, I have a really good friend with a daughter and she's always going for like the dark fairy in the movies with fairies and princesses and stuff. And it kind of freaks her teachers out. But I'm like, yeah, that's that's badass. awesome. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Let's yeah. face it. He's Luke all- is a whiny bitch. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, we'll see what happens in the new one. L- we'll, Luke's we'll starting position is a very, you know, he's very young. Right. Yeah. You know, Darth Vader is already Darth Vader. By the time, you know, movie four comes around, Luke is a boy. Yeah. You know, he worked on a, he's been working on a farm and he has a, a massive story arc, which is great. Darth Vader does change, but nowhere near as much as Luke does, in my opinion. 
With that, Bob, tell us about this week's Forgotten Superhero of Science. All right, guys. This week for uh, Forgotten Superheroes of Science, I'm talking about Barbara McClintock, 1902 to 92. She was a geneticist who made fundamental breakthroughs in genetic genetics that took decades to be appreciated, resulting in a Nobel Prize in medicine, the only woman to win in that category unshared with anyone else. Barbara was really interesting. She made some really key discoveries. Uh, when she was working in, at Cornell, she pioneered the field of cytogenetics in the 1930s, which focuses on the function of the cell and chromosomes. Her career uh, was pr- primarily all about maize, all about corn, which is actually ideal. I didn't know this. It's ideal for such studies since each kernel is essentially an individually fertilized embryo. So mm-hmm. each each ear then had potentially hundreds of individual offspring that could be evaluated. So it was very, very valuable. Yeah, so a quick aside, Bob, when one cultivar of corn contaminates another field, you could actually see that like each individual kernel could be a different hybrid. And like there are some types of corn that are different color, like so you might have a blue corn invading a yellow corn field, and you just have these like mosaic of blue kernels mixed in with the yellow kernels so you could tell which ones were fertilized from the the corn on the outside yeah right and as a quicker aside when i would teach (laughs) bio one that's how we taught genetics a lot of times especially um simple crosses mendelian genetics we could use these beautiful multicolored ears of corn to look at first generation and second generation crosses it's cool yeah. yeah, and the actual different colors of the kernels that you could get was actually a big part of, of what she did. So uh, she had an amazing uh, career. Uh, amazing. Inclu- amazing. She had a very, ah. very, very <laughs> – no, it really was an amazing career. She, she That included confirming scientifically for the first time Thomas Morgan's then 20-year-old theory that genes were positioned on chromosomes and genetic traits were determined by these genes. I mean, he made that – what was that in the in the teens, maybe or the twenties, and uh, nobody could really confirm that. It was an amazing theory, but no. So I said amazing again. It was an <laughs> intriguing theory, uh, but nobody until uh, until um, McClintock uh, verified it, and she did it incredibly, incredibly well with amazing techniques that that uh, just revolutionized the, this newborn uh, field of cytogenetics. She was also the first to speculate on the idea of epigenetics. Which describes really? yes, which describes gene expression that's heritable, not by DNA changes. So it said that she was the first to speculate on it. I'm not sure she went far beyond that, but that in and of itself pretty fascinating. So her greatest discovery, though, was transposable elements or jumping genes. So these are little snippets of DNA that can change position to other sections of a gene or. Uh, within a gene or to other genes. And these can play a role in mutation, turning other genes on and off. It, uh, conf- it can confer bacterial resistance to antibiotics, et cetera, et cetera. They're just incredibly important in the field of genetics. So she was clearly ahead of her time. It took many years for her discovery to be accepted. And she won, like I said, the Nobel Prize for it. People just uh, did not like the theory. It, just, it was just too far ahead of its time. People didn't believe it, and uh, she actually stopped publishing uh, her results for a while because because of the of the reaction. But uh, I think it was uh, well over a decade or two later that uh, that people realized, whoa, this this uh, was really prescient. So remember Barbara McClintock. Mention her to your friends, perhaps when discussing exon shuffling to create introns, if it comes up. Yeah, or corn. 
All right, we're going to have a bit of a Mars theme to the show this week. The big news this week was the discovery, another discovery supporting water on Mars. But before we get to that, I do want to point out that uh, The Martian is coming out this weekend. We are going to be reviewing The Martian next week. So if you want to listen to our review without spoilers, watch the movie before the show comes out next week. And we have an interview with the author of The Martian later in the episode. But Evan, you're going to start us off with an overview of the new NASA discovery of water on Mars. It was the big news this week, liquid water on the surface of Mars. And it was discovered through data taken by the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, HiRISE. And the camera shots revealed what they are call recurrent slope lineae, or RSLs. And on the surface of Mars, there are these straight dark streaks that are running down the sides of craters and these canyons at sort of the mid-latitude levels on Mars, not even in the polar regions. Researchers have said that these stains from summertime, from the summertime months of Mars, they flow down the cliffs and crater walls. They leave long, dark stains on the Martian terrain that can reach hundreds of meters downhill in the warmer months before they dry up in the autumn as surface temperatures drop. So they've come to the conclusion that this is flowing water or water-based liquid. Yes, well, <laughs> it's that. But a solution, I should I should say, because it's not the kind of water you know, you'd know you find in a bottle in the store. Uh, it's more of a brine, a, a salty, minerally solution with perchlorates, which is uh, something we've, that scientists have speculated uh, before in, in studying Mars, but this perhaps has sort of sealed the deal and they've come out and made this announcement, which is, you know, certainly fascinating to know that you know, liquid water can can be on Mars. We think of Mars as this very distant place far away from the sun. It must be like very cold all the time. Well, that's not really true. In the summer months, you can reach temperatures can reach as high as 80 degrees Fahrenheit or 26 or 27 degrees Celsius. The multi-billion dollar question is where is this water coming from? Well, uh, there are a few speculations, and I'm sure even more than a few, but uh, some of the ones I've read about include that the water might be rising up from underground because there is ice under the surface of the planet. So it maybe, might. Maybe it's coming from the canals on Mars. That is definitely <laughs> one of the many Obviously. suggestions. Uh, that, that one's quite old, but what, 150 years old now? <laughs> Perhaps. What about the Martian atmosphere? There's actually some humidity in the Martian atmosphere. And as was reported this week, they said that they detected more humidity than they previously thought. So perhaps the concentration of humidity eventually, if you, over a long period of time, will will coalesce into uh, into the uh, water pockets that would uh, that would cause this to happen. Um, and also, um, I, I learned this from Phil Plate reading, reading his article uh, about this. Uh, the term is deliquescence. Have you guys ever heard of that? Kara, that may be yeah, a yeah. that good word. The process by which a substance <laughs> absorbs moisture from the atmosphere until it dissolves in the absorbed water and forms a solution. Huh. Uh, so water being absorbed into the ground from the atmosphere collects and when eventually there's enough to flow, it perhaps will flow. Uh, but that's all speculation. Um, they're still working on figuring that out, but it's just a very, very cool development and, you know, just one more little piece of the puzzle that is the uh, the great planet Mars. 
Now, the next question is, what are the implications, if any, of liquid water on Mars for the prospect of life on Mars? Right. And that's... Yep. Yeah. And that's like, I guess, uh, to follow Evan's... uh, uh, mention of billion dollar question, then that would be the trillion dollar question. I would say, what are the implications for life? And from what I've read, it's not great. It's it's nothing to be really jumping up and down about at this point. What? What are you talking about? The fact that there's available liquid water on Mars me- makes the mission to Mars a lot more easy. Yeah, so we got an email this week from a reader. His name is Carver Bearson, and he's a grad student in planetary science at UC Santa Cruz. And he brought up the point that I think is an important point that I had been thinking about, too, that the media in in many ways kind of overinflated this water finding, not because it's not fascinating and not because it's not absolutely important, but because instead of saying that this was a really good incremental finding that just reinforces the scientific method, they said, this is a great discovery and it's one step closer to understanding where life exists on Mars, which is maybe a little bit premature, if not kind of all out baseless. So there's a great blog by Emily Lakdawalla. She's at the Planetary Society. And she also um, talks a little bit about a really good article that was written by Lee Billings for Scientific American. And I definitely recommend looking into both of those. Now, Emily is not convinced that this recent finding makes a better case for life on Mars than any previous water associated findings of which there are plenty. And so there's a great quote from her in this article where she says, Personally, I don't think extant life on Mars is any more likely because of today's announcement than it was before. An incredibly salty, corrosive, transient water environment is not a very good place to look for life. I think a much more habitable environment is available in the thin films of water that Phoenix observed in the soil at its near-polar landing site. A less accessible, but also less radiation-fried and more continuously habitable place would be deep underground where Mars's internal heat could keep groundwater liquid for very long periods of time. So we know that water or we think that water exists in many places on Mars, but this surface finding is very exciting. And the reason it's very exciting is because we've been looking at these patterns. So more than it being a home to life on Mars, what it really shows is that Mars is very geologically active. And that's a very exciting finding. It shows that water may form and go away and form and go away on a seasonal pattern. Now, something that I think is even more important to discuss is whether we will ever find life on Mars, because the actual kind of process of looking for life on Mars in and of itself might kind of mess up any of our chances to find anything. And that really contamination, contamination. That's exactly why this has been the one of the biggest problems with going to Mars since we started uh, with the The original Viking landers in 1976. So even right now, there's a question, did Viking leave anything behind? There's no way to be sure. And since Viking, of course, we've had each rover and each rover is created in what we think of as a very clean environment. There are very strict protocols for how to keep these things sterile. But famously, even on Curiosity rover, a drill bit was used that was post-sterilization. And that, you know, was an absolute scandal for good reason, because people are dirty. And we know this <laughs> because it was Bob. It was your story just a week or two ago, oh, right? Like about our, our microclouds. Our yes. Exactly. Yes, we're everywhere. 
Right, Karen. We are. Which, which also means that, sure, there are ways we could deal with probes by sterilizing them, which, of course, is more expensive because you got to make the electronics a lot hardier if you're going to be sterilizing it. But once people set foot on that planet, game the over. game is over. It's game over. Because, it, like, like, like I said with my, my microbial cloud talk, there's no way we're going to prevent that, that stuff from getting out there. So we got to really start thinking about that, what we're going to do in that situation. Yeah, you absolutely can't sterilize a human being. I mean, we, by definition, a, a, like one-tenth of our cells, I think, are actually actually not even ours three to one three hundred percent three times oh it is three times more so kara you're saying though that you know a drill bit is this piece of metal that was on the planet earth and mm-hmm. was handled by people was brought mm-hmm. to was brought to where no it was used on the rover after the rover was sterilized oh okay so they so they contaminated the rover the rover yep. goes to mars yep there could have been a ton of microbes on there that actually survived the trip. Yep. And now they may even find some habitat there, right? That's the whole point? Yes. Yeah, studies have shown that microbes can survive in near vacuum. They can survive in empty space. Back all the way back in 1967, so straight on during the space race, the United Nations, uh, there, there was a United Nations outer space treaty that was made that forbids the quote, harmful contamination of other worlds with Earth's biology. So this is something that everybody in the UN has has signed onto and said we are not going to can- contaminate other worlds with uh with earth biology. And because of that, there was a whole other committee, the Committee on Space Research, that designated special regions on the planet Mars where we can't even send probes because sending spacecraft there is too much of a risk of contamination. And by definition, most of these special regions are places where there's the highest likelihood that Martian microbial life could exist. So it's it's kind of a really interesting catch-22 that we're in. By trying to study life, there's a massive chance that we would contaminate the existing life. But again, like you said, Bob, all bets are off the minute that we say, you know what, screw it. We're just going to send people there. Like, think about Mark Watley. Think about the Martian. I mean, he would have contaminated the shit out of the red planet. Oh, gosh. His, his cloud is all over that, that dust bowl. Yeah, right. So, exactly. Kara, I, I, I remember a news item I did. I don't remember how, it was one or two years ago where they put microbes on the outside of a rocket and came th- for the specific purpose to study if they survive being in outer space and you know what mm-hmm. they did yep Hell yep shit. they survive space they survive near ba- uh, near vacuum and think about all of the times when we might have already contaminated mars this could be a moot point we had the viking landers uh we had right. then all of the different rovers which we hoped were fully sterilized and then i mean mars could be contaminated by earth biology just from asteroid impact there's a good chance that there would be enough material right. blown that far into space that we could have already started to populate. So even if we found microbes on Mars, it'd be very difficult to be able to say that they were Martian in origin. This really bothers me now. I'm really freaking out because like when Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock would beam down to all those freaking planets, like mm-hmm. what's with that? What's with that? What the hell are they thinking? They were uh, marking their territory, I guess. That's, I just I think they're idiots now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, oh, no. but Jay, they could have easily had a device that that somehow nullified their entire microbial cloud. They, I never, allu- they always, never alluded to it. They I don't think always... we knew about. Here, I'll give them a pass because I don't think we knew about the microbiome. Jay, come How on, Jay. They had <laughs> mic- antimicrobial phase inverters. Okay. Yes. Oh, there you yes. go. With, with, with tachyon fields, of course, and Heisenberg compensators. So we're good. 
That's a, that annoys me. I don't know how you guys feel about it. So part of me, just part, I don't know how big, but part of it, that it just makes me want to think, let's just throw caution to the wind and just get boots on the ground, just get people there and do the best we can. But I mean, come on, we're not going to, we can't step foot on any, any planet just because of that. I mean, that's annoying. Historically, the rationale for going to a place like Mars would be to search for life. Now we're starting to actually think about colonizing. We're starting to think about kind of being these pioneers where people will go, where they'll terraform, where they'll see if they can survive on the red planet. But historically, all of these plans were wrapped around, why would we spend all this money? Why would we want to go to these remote places? Oh, to see if we're not alone in the universe. So I think we'd really need to be rethinking and reassessing the why before we can talk about whether or not it's possible. Well, well, right. If the goal is to create a second Earth and terraform eventually Mars, then we got to just say, well, screw that. I mean... Yeah, but for a lot of people, that's, you know, that might not be the goal. We have to convince ourselves to a reasonable degree that there aren't any living microbes on Mars. And once we've decided, yeah, okay, there's probably nothing alive here, it's ours. You know, we'll just do with it what we want. If there Mm -hmm. are, if there is life, I agree, we should leave it alone. All right, well, let's move on. Uh, we're going to talk next about a recent study looking at the connections in the brain. This is based on data from the... Star Trek Next Generation? The and Human the Connectome <laughs> Project. Bob, you're familiar oh, with the yeah. Connectome Project? Yeah, yeah, man. Connectome. Yeah, the I love, Connectome. I love ohms. Yeah, a map of all the connections in the brain. Uh, NIH is funding this as part of, part of the Brain Project. The Connectome Project essentially is using high-definition functional MRI scanning. They plan on doing full scans of 1,200 individuals, completely mapping all the connections in their brain, and then making this data set uh, available to neuroscientists to explore and, and answer questions. So they released data on 500 individuals, the first 500 of the 1,200 they plan on doing. In addition to mapping the connections in their brains, they also did extensive testing of their IQ, their personality, their demographics, historical information, medical information, etc. So what the current authors did, they looked at data from 461 individuals. They essentially were looking for the strength of the connection among various areas in the brain, and then they were comparing that to specific personality profiles. Then they, they essentially did massive data crunching uh, and were just, you know, they were doing what we call data mining. They were just looking for, is there any correlation here? We're just going to look at a whole bunch of different connections and a whole bunch of different personality profiles and see if anything looks like it's a, it's a correlation. Um, so this is, of course, an exploratory study. This, that's the kind of thing you could use to sort of generate hypotheses. Um, But they did find a fairly statistically strong connection, correlation, between certain parts of the brain that are known to be involved, known to be involved with a higher level cognitive function and with classically positive traits. And what I mean by that are things like degree of education, lifelong earning potential, staying married, staying out of jail, things that most people would consider positive life outcomes or qualities, where the negative uh, traits were things like going to jail, you know, you know, not being able to hold a job, you know, things like that. Low, you know, lower IQ. What the study suggests 
is that that the strength of connections between certain parts of the brain may provide some generic cognitive advantages that allow people to do better in a large range of cognitive tasks or that translate into positive life outcomes. This raises a lot of questions. I don't think this study actually answers any questions. I think it just raises a lot of questions. Though always the first question, is the correlation real? Or was this just the product, the fluke result of data mining? We don't know. We'd have to, we'd have to replicate it. Fortunately, there's an easy way to do that, right? You just wait for the next 500 people from the Connectome project and you see if they replicate it. You have a fresh data set. You don't include the original data set. You look at a fresh data set and say, does, the, do we see the same correlations? If you see the same correlations, that means it's probably a real correlation. It wasn't, probably wasn't just a result of look, looking at so many possibilities, right? You know, rolling those dice hundreds of times. If we assume that the correlation is real and it will hold up when replicated with new data, then the question is, what's the causal connection, right? What, what is the pattern of causation? We can't just assume the most simple causation that if you have these stronger connections in these particular parts of the brain, that they allow you or help you do better in life because you have some kind of general cognitive advantage. Uh, that's only one possibility. The other possibility is that people who are born with certain advantages or for whatever reason, because of their personality or opportunity, they take advantage of certain things, that they learn behaviors and skills and personality traits that uh, through plasticity causes these parts of the brain to have stronger connections, right? It's like, you know, if a, if a child learns to play the violin at a young age and continues to play into adulthood, they have stronger connections in that part of their brain, the part of the brain especially that controls the finger dexterity on their offhand, the hand that they would be used to working the strings, you know, the frets. So, that you know, no one would argue that, you know, th that part of the brain being bigger and having stronger connections causes them to be good violinists. It's obviously the other way around. It's also possible that there's some other third factor that results in people doing well in life and having these stronger connections, maybe some other neurological or biochemical or biological factor or whatever. So this study didn't even explore the question of causality. It was just looking for correlations. Again, this it provokes more questions than it really answers. So that that more research that somebody could do to try to see what if they could sort of tease apart what the causal relationship is here. There's other questions that come out of this as well. And one is the very question of, is there a generic cognitive ability that has wide ranging implications for someone's behavior, success, intelligence, etc.? Historically, this has been called the G factor, the idea that there is this one general intelligence factor. Uh, and it's controversial. Uh, it certainly has not been established. And the question is, does this study, if it holds up, does this support the notion of a G factor? Is that what we're seeing? Are these parts of the brain and the networks among them? Is Are these networks the G factor? Do they Are they providing some kind of general cognitive ability that makes you good at everything? You know what I mean? 
as opposed to the alternate view as well, you know, you could be good at math and horrible at music and good at language and terrible at coordination. And, you know, you might have good self-control in one area, but not in another area. And these are all sort of independent variables. That's sort of one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is that you have these just good substrate, you know, that you're, if your brain functions well, it functions well in everything. Uh, and isn't it, I mean, doesn't it kind of hug that side of the spectrum and practice? Like generally speaking, if you as a neurologist are giving a standardized intelligence test as part of maybe a neuropsych evaluation, if somebody is okay, 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 massive deficit, okay, okay, isn't that more indicative that there's something wrong in their brain than that they actually are just kind of amazing at math and kind of horrible in language? So the, we have to make several distinctions here. Okay. One is between a healthy brain state and a pathological brain state. So if you have a pathological brain state like Alzheimer's disease, yes, you could that could make you horrible at everything mm-hmm. because your whole brain is atrophying away. So there are certain things that can go wrong with brain function or there are certain things that just have to do with like how fast your nerves conduct. You know, that affects every neuron in your brain. So Mm -hmm. everything is a little slow, you know. So there are some generic things like that that have implications across the board. And then, but we do say like we do neuropsychological testing all the time where we look at all the different various cognitive aspects that we can test for. And yeah, mm-hmm. there are people who are high on one and low on the other. You know, they do seem to operate as independent variables to some degree, but then within the context of an overall, I think, sort of cognitive ability. So I think the answer is both. Okay. That, you know what I mean? I think that there are some things that and you, and you know, we, we, you know people, right? There are some people who just seem to be good at a lot of different things. Yeah, but I guess I, I, I guess was, I was always under the impression that somebody who has, let's say, high average intelligence generally does well across the board on a standardized IQ test. That if there's something that's deficient, like below normal, like if they're kind of testing around a 105 or a 110 across the board and then they have some sort of variable on the IQ test that's significantly below normal, that that's more indicative of pathology than it is of the fact that they just have kind of a scattered cognitive pattern. Yeah, it depends. It depends on how much okay. of a dis- disconnect there is. But there are, yeah. again, it, if you're talking about pathology, mm-hmm. that's that's one thing. But with brain function, there are also disorders that are not pathological, meaning the brain cells are fine, the neurons are fine. But there are people who are very bright, who are overall cognitively seem to be above average in everything, but they have dyslexia. They can't read. Yeah, They're just crap true. at reading. Why is that? <laughs> their brain generally functions well, but the, whatever part of their brain that's necessary to be a good reader, maybe there's just one element of reading that their brain is just not wired for it. Uh, like, for example, some people have a hard time intuitively understanding that words are made up of sounds. That they don't, they just don't make that connection and they, and therefore, because it's not automatic, they have to marshal a lot more brain power to, you know, to power their way through reading and therefore it's slow and, and time consuming and energy consuming as opposed to if you have a dedicated circuit that does it well, it's subconscious and fast and easy and intuitive. Uh, so yeah, so it's, we see that. We see people who just have one, area of their cognitive function that is horrible, even though they might be generally very smart. But at the same time, I think there are things like the ability to pay attention, right? That you could see how (laughs) that would serve you well in hundreds of cognitive tasks. 
It's it's a mm-hmm. it, that is a very general all-purpose cognitive function. Paying attention, the ability to concentrate, or just memory. You know, just having yeah. a good memory. Some people have a literally have more bits in their working memory than other people. Right. Some people have four bits of data that they can manipulate. Other people have five or six. And that seems to help them in across the board in a lot of different ways. So Mm -hmm. it's a lot to unpack here. There's a lot to think about about what this actually means. Are we looking at some kind of all purpose cognitive function like self control, executive function or? Does perhaps those kind of things are overstated and, and function really is independent variables? I think it's a combination. This is also nature versus nurture, right? You know, when mm-hmm. you talk about the error of causation, and again, I think it's both. I think you're born with certain talents and predispositions and some things are easier for some people than other, others, but environment has a massive effect. We talk about this with like, yeah. how, how long does it take to master something? Well, anyone could master, you know, almost. I mean, obviously, unless you're like way, way at the low end of the bell curve, but for most people, 95%, you know, you could master anything. It just might take you twice as long as somebody who has more of an aptitude for it. It might take you 20,000 hours instead of 10,000 hours. You'll get there eventually. It's just harder. So anyway, this is all fascinating, you know, about how we're really starting to tease apart how the brain hooks up, you know, and how it works and how the different networks and parts of the brain are sort of all coming together to produce this end result that we can observe and measure, which is cognitive function and behavior, et cetera. And it really challenges our conceptions of what are the fundamental units of cognitive function, you know, because that's, we, we have really just metaphors of, of cognitive function, things that sort of are representative of what's happening because that's the thing that we observe. We have our own understanding of what we're observing. And we need to try to dig down to what's actually happening in the brain. What processing is actually happening? And how does that translate into what we observe and measure? All right, let's move on. Jay, this is, this is now really a, this is a philosophical question we're getting to now. And that is the use of the term skeptic versus denier, which recently oh – came up again because of the AP. That's correct. So I thought it'd be interesting. Do you guys know what the Associated Press is? It's like Reuters. It's like a wire service, right? I mean, it's like a combination of a bunch of different journalists in a network that deliver fast reporting. That's right. It's a nonprofit American multinational news agency. So they they have a headquarters in New York City, and they're a cooperative organization, and it's owned by its contributing newspapers, radio, television stations, and the like. And, and you know, I, I, I never had a clear definition of the AP in my head before. I kind of had a general idea of what you were saying, but I didn't, didn't have a very clear definition. So the AP has a style book, and the style book is, accept, is the accepted standard guide for grammar punctuation. You know, it's a, it's a guidebook for reporting principles and practices at, at, for, for journalism in general. Right. So it's 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 widely used and respected, and that that's cool. I didn't know that. It's like they, what terms to use for what? Exactly. Which always reminds me of that scene from Full Metal Jacket. If uh, they come to us, they are a refugee. <laughs> if we if we go to them, they are an evacuee. Yeah, <laughs> and there are 
there are historical instances where like using the word genocide has been very controversial yeah. and, and they have oh, to be very gracious. careful. And of course, I remember when I was working at uh, HuffPost, everybody struggling with the AP had to, we had to wait until the AP told us how to spell Gaddafi. Because <laughs> yeah, it was, that was like, never is it settled, a G? Is it a Q? Ne- yeah, it was such a pain in the settled. ass. <laughs> it was never settled. It's not objective. It's, you know, we're translating it into a different alphabet. Anyway. Yep. So the AP recently updated their style book and they added a very interesting entry. Check this out. To describe those who don't accept climate science or dispute the world is warming from man-made forces, use climate change doubters or those who reject mainstream climate science, avoid use of skeptics or deniers. Huh. That, that's pretty cool. So why do we care about this? In the skeptical well, community, yeah. we, we have seen the term skeptic misused quite a bit by the press over and over, right? It's been, it's been used co-opted. To, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been used to describe, you know, those who I guess you can call them like they have an outlier perspective instead of using the word skeptic. You know, I'd think of them as more on the fringe or an outlier. So the irony is that scientific skepticism follows the scientific consensus, which means that skeptics are not outliers in their thinking at all. Well, it depends on what the, what the mainstream consensus is. How robust is it? You know, what uh, community of scientists are we talking about? You know, some some sciences are are themselves very new or small. And but this is climate science yeah. specifically. But if we're talking we're about yeah, but, but yeah, we're, here we're talking specifically about climate science. But Jay was making kind of a broad statement about skeptics, and also we have to point out that. You know, the word skeptic has lots of meanings. You know, it has a philosophical meaning. It has kind of a lay meaning that's closer to cynic or just the, just the, the fact of doubting makes you a skeptic. But we use right, it, movement skeptics use it to mean scientific skepticism. And, you know, oftentimes it comes up is that maybe we should always say scientific skeptic and never yeah. just say skeptic because Either that or we just we have to change the public perception of what the word means to the way we're using it. I agree with that, Steve. I totally agree with the idea of, of adopting scientific skepticism. Not only is it more accurate, um, but it does kind of take us one step away from how the word skeptic has been bastardized. I, I think that that speaks to one of the issues that journalists often face when they were struggling between these two terms for a climate denier, you know, a climate denier, you're editorializing when you call somebody a climate denier. And uh, that is the side of the argument that I feel comfortable editorializing on. But I thought it was really interesting when I interviewed Chris Mooney recently for my podcast, that since he left uh, Mother Jones and went to the Washington Post, he had to start using the term climate skeptic. He wasn't allowed to use the term climate denier because their readership is much more conservative. And that editorializing was actually offensive to their readers. So I think journalists have always been stuck in this complicated place where they want to report the news cleanly without putting their own thoughts into it. But neither word was really sufficient. What you just said like makes my next point, I think, very well, Kara. So words are important and their individual nuanced meanings are important, right? That's, you know, it's funny because you would think, you know, who cares? And just, you know, get your point across. No, like you have to, you know, with a, a scalpel, pick the words that you're using because there are, there are, can be very slight differences between words that would change the scope of what you're saying dramatically. So in this instance, the word skeptic is a label and it comes with a collection of, you know, ideas and concepts that go with it. 
Of course, it, and th- and those collections of of ideas and concepts change depending on who you talk to. But you know, in general, I think all of us agree on what the the term skeptic means. So the AP has been made aware of this fact that using the word skeptic to to describe someone whose beliefs are on the fringe is incorrect. Enough so that they changed their style book to point it out. That's that's a big yeah. deal. That's but a big yeah, move. I love that. It's also at the other end though, because not everyone who doesn't accept the maybe the mainstream view on climate change deserves the moniker of denier either because the problem with the scalpel metaphor jay is that there's no sharp bright line separating skeptics from doubters from deniers and therefore using a neutral term to refer to the whole spectrum is not a bad idea the devil is in the details here in my opinion, because it becomes obvious that many climate deniers want to be labeled as skeptics. So they may feel that, you know, it gives them some legitimacy and makes them seem more credible. I don't know. It's an interesting thing to think about. But skeptics, of course, don't like it when the term skeptics is darkened by, uh, you know, misuse. And believe me, the term skeptic has a history of trouble. The word skeptic doesn't define what you believe. It defines the process of how we come to our conclusions and how we obtain new trustworthy information, how we reject bad information. And, you know, I always like to defer to those who are smarter than myself. So I'll borrow Steve's excellent definition of scientific skepticism from his blog. And here it is. A skeptic is one who prefers beliefs and conclusions that are reliable and valid to ones that are comforting or convenient, and therefore rigorously and openly applies the methods of science and reason to all empirical claims, especially their own. A skeptic provisionally proportions acceptance of any claim to valid logic and a fair and thorough assessment of available evidence, and studies the pitfalls of human reason and the mechanisms of deception so as to avoid being deceived by others or themselves. Skepticism values method over any particular conclusion and takes a position of humility towards complex areas of knowledge requiring extensive expertise. Oh my God, Steve. That was so, <laughs> so absolutely perfect. Now, let me ask you, do you think that climate deniers follow this definition? No, not even close. No. H- how no, about anti- anti-vaxxers? No, not even close. How about chiropractors? No. How about homeopaths? No. Mm-hmm. At our best, a skeptic is able to question his or her, her own memory, our own perception, acknowledge our own biases and our I- ideology, and try not to talk about shit we don't know about. And I agree. And again, and the, the key is obviously that it's a process, not a conclusion. And the, the, the denialism is the same. I've been writing about denialism for literally as long as I've been a skeptic, like almost 20 years. It was one of like the first things I really sunk my teeth into. And, and my description of what it is has been evolving over the years as I've gotten more and more experience with the many examples of it. So here, if I can, Jay, is a quick, quick jot list of the kinds of things that deniers do. They do not fairly assess the scientific evidence, but will cherry pick the evidence that seems to support their position. They will make unreasonable or impossible demands for evidence, move the goalposts when evidence is presented, and refuse entire categories of legitimate scientific evidence. They will attempt to magnify scientific disagreements over lower level details as if they call into question higher level conclusions. They primarily focus on sowing doubt and confusion over the science they deny rather than offering a coherent alternate theory or explanation. They will exploit ambiguity or even create ambiguity in terminology or employ shifting definitions in order to create confusion or apparent contradiction. They will attack scientists personally and engage in a 
witch hunt in order to impugn their reputations and apparent motives. They will cast doubt on whether or not a scientific consensus exists. And when all else fails, they will invoke a conspiracy theory to explain why mainstream views differ from their own. Now, of course, not every not everyone who is essentially denying a mainstream scientific consensus does all of those things. It, that's why it's a fuzzy definition. The more of those things that you do, the more of a denier you are. But there absolutely are people who tick every box in that list. Sure. And they should mm-hmm. be called deniers because that's what they are. They are engaging in denialism. It's as much a thing as pseudoscience is a thing. But there are people who are not all the way towards one end of the spectrum. Maybe they're just flirting with some mild denialism, but basically they're trying to be skeptical you know, this everything, the entire spectrum exists out there. And and it's it's tough when you're dealing with somebody who is eh, just flirting with the fringe of denial. What do you call them? I, they're going to be offended if you call them a denier. Um, it's just like calling somebody who maybe has some soft aspects of what they're doing, calling them a pseudoscientist. Yeah, they'd get upset about that, too. Doesn't mean that's we'll sure. deny curious yeah. <laughs> or a crank deny, or whatever. Denial light. Yeah. So it's just these all, <laughs> all of these things are those are all spectrums. But, you know, it's it's good to know what the phenomenon is at the far end of the spectrum because it helps us understand the behavior, which is what yeah. this is all about. But sure. because but people yeah. take this all so personally uh, which mm-hmm. I understand, but I mean, I do think we, tr- we should try to back away from the personal emotional reaction to this. This is ultimately a discussion of science and philosophy and method, etc. Try not to take it personally. But that's why we need things like a style guide to tell us what phrases to use, not to be accurate, but to avoid hurt feelings, you know? Yes, that is so important to a journalist who is answering to their editor, whose job it is to try to report the news and not make any personal editorial decisions, even though, as we know, people are biased and you can't help it. You're trying to strive to minimize the amount of editorializing. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about our sponsor this week, ZipRecruiter. As a business owner, which I am, I can tell you that your company is only as good as, duh, the people you hire. But when you're short-staffed, and I'm not talking about your sex life, Evan, there's no time to deal with all the different job sites. That's until now, because thanks to ZipRecruiter.com, you can post to 100-plus job sites with just a click. And you'll have the highest chance of finding the right person for the job. On top of that, you can instantly be matched to candidates from over 6 million resumes. That's That's a lot of people. That's a lot. Yeah. So try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash skeptics. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash skeptics. All right, everyone, let's get back to our show. All right, well, Jay, get us up to date on Who's That Noisy? I will. So last week, do you guys remember the sound? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was blastery. Which blaster? That's a nice word, Kara. I appreciate that. Blastery. Blastery? It was a blastery sound. So, so Jay, when I hear that noise, it 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 makes me feel like immediately like it's from Star Trek. Yes, me too. <laughs> I know, right? Me, know. me too. There's really no <laughs> question. That's the first well, thing I thought of, and I can't think of anything else. But that was where, the sophistication was it, of sound effects. Was it then. the was that the noise of a? Um, it, it's an early episode. It was the uh, the Soth vampire when they shot when they shot the husband of the, they shot the <laughs> oh Kirk God, shot God. the husband oh of, the, of the yes. <laughs> Yes, and so you got the episode. It is a specifically it's a, a light stunt. stunt. It's actually the the 
uh, the lightest stun that, that has ever shown. It really, it really just like knocks him. It like it's it, it dazes him for a moment. It, yeah. it, that's it. it and it's comical it. the way it, it happened yes. in the episode. It's I really remember a little very clearly, But yes, that's what it is. <laughs> um, it. Now, isn't it interesting though that you know the the sound? We have these sounds that we know that are in our heads that you might not even hear for a decade, and then you hear yes. it, and it comes with like a suitcase filled of emotions and memories. Yeah, and yeah. it's amazing. Um, that's why I love hearing things like this because of how, how well I know them. Like, why the hell do I know that? I haven't really heard that sound in 20 years. Andrew Hansford wrote an email and he nailed it. Star Trek Federation phaser type one or type two set to stun setting from the original series. (laughs) He nailed it. He didn't name the episode and the guy that got hit with it like Bob did, (laughs) but, but good job, Andrew. So. Check out this one. <laughs> really? Yeah, come on. It's too easy, what? man. Some people, so, too, too easy oh, no, for sci-fi easy? freak shows, yes, but not freak too shows. easy for the average listener. <laughs> not so easy to the average listener. I have no idea Thank what you, that Kara. is. So I can be your barometer here. Yeah. All right. So I'm, you you, know, you guys, sure. I mean, but I when I was thinking about the, the blasters that I want to showcase, I was picking favorites slash mm-hmm. things that maybe are a little difficult for you guys, but... That one I know was a gimme for you guys, but I'm really curious to see if you know how much of a response we get. Okay, what what was that? Now, before we go, because that definitely was an interesting one, but I have another sound that I'm not going to even say what it is. I just want to play this sound and see if anybody has any idea what it is. So that sounds that? That sound like a 1950s movie. Yeah, that sounds like a nuclear bomb. That very, it's so interesting, isn't it, how we we could mm-hmm. assign decades to sounds? Yeah. All right, yeah, I'm going to tell sure. you what that is right out of the gate. I just want everyone that just heard that sound to just re-listen to it, think about it. What do you think that was? I picked it because, yep, it sounds like a blaster. You know what that is? Do you want to play it one That's more time first? You're gonna I, love it. I have no idea. What blew the, the hell out of something. That's what lightning sounds like underwater. Ah, oh, cool. That's amazing. I love it. Cool, cool. Holy shit! That's and it makes cool. you think. Makes I don't you think. Feel bad. Hmm. Those people that come up with sound effects, they're they're drawing from the real world. Oh, they are. Foley artists are awesome. Yeah. They get really creative. All right, everybody, please join me. Guess what? What? What blaster type weapon we played? Email me at WTN at theskepticsguide.org. All right, Kara, what's the word? The word this week is isograd. 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 What does it sound like to you guys? I would say I'm what so field of grad. science meteorology. do you think it comes meteorology. from? Iso- Sounds like meteorology? Iso- isobar. I dig it. Uh, isotope, it would be, uh, that would be chemistry. That sounds like chemistry. But isograd is actually an earth science term. Specifically, it's a geology term. An isograd, according to the American Heritage Science Dictionary, is a line on a map connecting points on the earth where metamorphism of rocks occurred under the same pressure and temperature conditions. Oh, wow. These lines... Yeah, these lines are established on the basis of the distribution of index minerals, and they're useful in reconstructing the tectonic history 
of a given region. Mm -hmm. So, uh, of course, remember back to life sciences. Metamorphic rocks are rocks that have undergone metamorphism or they've changed physically or chemistry or both due to heat and pressure. They can be igneous rock, sedimentary rock, or other metamorphic rocks before they undergo metamorphism. And an isograd is a distinct line kind of differentiating between different layers of metamorphic rock. It's etymology, uh, the earliest... Actually, no, I was able to find exactly where the word came from. I love these. It was coined by C.E. Tilly in 1924. And according to H.G.F. Winkler, the author of Petrogenesis of Metamorphic Rocks, a book written uh, first published in 1994, he says that Tilly coined the term to, quote, designate a definite degree of metamorphism by the first appearance of a so-called index mineral, such as biotite, almondine, starlite, etc. All right, well, let's go on with our interview with Andy Weir, author of The Martian. Uh, this is an excerpt from a much longer interview, which we will include in SGU premium content for our premium members. And the extended interview will be uh, released tomorrow. And we are being joined right now by Andy Weir. Andy, welcome to The Skeptic's Guide. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Andy, you are a novelist, a software engineer, a, a web comic, I understand, and you are <laughs> yeah, the author yeah. of the the novel The Martian, which is about to be released as a major motion picture. Uh, so, that's I think we'd like to start talking to you about that, about The Martian. What was your inspiration for writing that novel? Well, I was uh, I'm a space dork. I always have been. And uh, so I was sitting around in my living room one day thinking about um, how could we do a manned mission to Mars with our current technology? Not not for the purposes of writing a story or anything, just like speculating, having fun. And I, you know, I had to come up with, okay, how do we get the astronauts there? How do we keep them alive when they're on the surface? How do we get them home? How does all how do all these puzzle pieces fit together? And what does the mission look like? And I was working on that. And I realized, well, no mission plan is complete without accounting for failure scenarios. Like, okay, what do they do if this breaks? What do they do if that breaks? What do they do if these two things both break at the same time? I started to realize that this is that these uh, situations would make for a pretty interesting story. So I created an unfortunate protagonist and subjected him to all of them. And when you say current technology, what year did you lock this in at one year? What year's technology are we talking about? Well, um, all the technology that's depicted in the book uh, really exists right now. Um, some of it is is uh, kind of better versions than what we have right now. You know, like more efficient, more effective. Uh, but but it's all it's all real stuff. Uh, so I, I the book takes place actually in in 2035. I never actually say that in the story, but I I had to calculate launch windows uh, for the ship that goes back and forth between uh, Mars and Earth, and so. I was forced to pick an exact date for the thing to take place. Yeah, so if we use a 2035 launch window, this is just a very conservative extrapolation of current technology to that time, meaning maybe a little incrementally better, but no new technology. Right. There. Well, there, there's one hand-wavy thing. I do say, I just kind of say, like, well, um, they have, like, effectively magic radiation shielding in real life the radiation shielding for you know to protect you while you're on mars would have to be pretty pretty sizable and it would be a non-trivial issue but i just kind of hand waved that away all right yeah that's actually it's interesting that you mentioned that that the one thing 
the one gimme was the radiation shielding because that may be the biggest technological hurdle to getting people to Mars and even surviving on Mars for a long time. So you, you couldn't come up with a plausible way to solve that, so you just that's the one thing you sort of gave yourself? Yeah, I mean, I said, I, I explained in like one paragraph that Hab Canvas can uh, block... Uh, radiation, but that's I, I didn't explain how. So that that's some new materials technology that doesn't exist in the real world. So that yeah. that that's hand wavy. Although I have to say, I think we probably will have those materials by 2035, as we're working on a lot of foam steel and other sort of nano structured material that actually is significantly increasing its property uh, in terms of blocking X rays and gamma rays. So that's actually not implausible, but yeah, you have to. Something like hope. that needs to be done, yeah. Yeah, that's actually one of the biggest problems that they have for long-distance space travel is dealing with that. Other than that, the radiation shielding, uh, what was the other sort of biggest technical hurdle to a manned mission or a personed mission to Mars given existing technology? What was the hardest problem for you to solve? I wanted to have them go to Mars and then come back, but I didn't want to leave them on Mars for over a year. Like, I didn't want the original mission plan to... Basically, I didn't want the mission plan to count on home and transfer ellipses. So I, I figured, like, okay, they're going to have an ion-engine-based craft, and which is powered by a nuclear reactor. Now, all this stuff is, is stuff that we know how to do right now, but actually making it happen would be a huge challenge. So I would say the ion propulsion system of Hermes is probably the biggest ask, you know, the biggest ask we have for, for you know, kind of my, my view of how, how to go to Mars. Yeah, you, you didn't use the, uh, the propellantless drive <laughs> that no, has been well, in the news I, recently. The EM drive? No. The EM I, drive, I, yeah. I, yeah. Good move. I, I agree with that. <laughs> I, uh, I'm pretty sure that's going to turn out to not actually be propellantless. Yeah. Like, one way or another, there's, or there's some... Or not a drive, inside. yeah. <laughs> yeah, or, or, or it's, yeah, it's a propellantless <laughs> thing that does not change its momentum. <laughs> right, right, right. But, um, you know, hey, maybe, maybe we'll find out some brand new science that we never even considered before. It, but it, it'd be nice. Also, I'm dubious. Yeah, yeah. All right, so you so you wanted to bring your people to Mars and bring them back within a year. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, and um, the idea being that it, it's it's just if you have if you have a manned mission to Mars that ends up with people being off of Earth for you know two and a half or three years, then it's it starts to get really dangerous, very risky. Um, so this is a one year mission. Yeah. So there were just too many problems with like, and did you even think about doing a self-sustaining colony on Mars, or was that way we're away from that? No, this is this was the third manned mission to Mars. It, it's it's nowhere near the point where people actually have colonies. Uh, have you been following the story of Mars One? Yeah, yeah. Um, I uh, I don't take Mars One seriously at all. I I don't think they're ever going to go to Mars. They they only have something like four hundred thousand dollars of funding, and that's. That's not enough money to colonize Nebraska, let alone Mars. <laughs> but uh, but they, they, I think they serve as a good think tank, and they, they sit down and they think through a lot of stuff. So they, they serve a purpose, and, and I don't think they're actually a scam. A lot of people accuse them of being a scam. I don't think they are. I think they're just kind of uh, kind of dreamers. But I, and I do think they serve a purpose. They, they try to think through a lot of the, a lot of the problems that will come up. Yeah, so just for the for the audience, if you haven't heard of it, Mars One is essentially almost like a Kickstarter campaign for going to colonizing Mars. They're trying to make a reality TV show and fund it, and, and just and the, their launch window was in the 2020s or something. It's yeah. like coming up. 
So did you um, cross-fertilize with them at all? Did you give them some ideas, or did they give you any ideas, or these are just totally independent thought experiments? Completely unrelated, yeah. yeah. I, I don't think I'd even heard of Mars One until after I'd self-published the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think and it was a little bit later, yeah. And I doubt they got anything from me. So, <laughs> like, I, I doubt they read the book and said, like, yes, this will affect our policy. No, I, I don't think so. Uh, and how much in doing the research for the book? I mean, did you form relationships with any engineers at NASA or any anyone in the field, or is this all just publicly available information that you were using? It's all just publicly available stuff. I uh, my primary research tool was Google, <laughs> and uh, reading lots of Wikipedia articles is where I'd end up landing. Uh, I didn't know anyone in aerospace at all when I wrote the book. I was uh, just totally on my own. Although I remember I'm a, I'm a space dork, so I spent uh, you know, most of my life watching documentaries and stuff. So I knew more than a layman, but I'm not an expert by any stretch of the imagination. Mm -hmm. And after the book came out, because that's usually when the experts chime in, right? Is after you've written what you're writing. Yeah. Did you, yeah. you, you get, did you get a lot of interesting feedback from experts and what, anything surprising? Yeah, well, I mean, I was really surprised to hear from NASA people at all. Like, but they, but they emailed me and said, like, "Hey, I loved your book," and uh, very, very positive, uh, very positive reviews of the of the scientific accuracy. That made me feel good. Um, a few, a few errors here and there that they pointed out, and, but they said, "But overall, pretty good, pretty solid." So that made me feel good. Great. Were there any head slappers? Did they point anything out to you? Like, oh crap, I totally forgot about that. There are some significant errors here. Well, not significant, but there are some uh, mistakes here and there that I was like, oh, if I'd known that, I would have done things differently, you know, and I could have easily solved the problem, but I, I just didn't know. Like, for instance, a chemist um, worked out, did all the math on the hydrazine reduction that the protagonist does in the story and calculates, okay, so you gave me enough information to work this out. The inside of the hab would have increased uh, temperature by about 400 Celsius. So, you know, that would have killed him. <laughs> There's lots of ways to solve that problem. He could have done things slower. If you knew it was a problem, yeah. If I'd known, yeah, if I'd known it existed. Has this inspired you to write other novels in the same genre of speculative science? It's almost like you're just one notch ahead of where we are. Like, what would it take to do this thing that's actually feasible? Anything else in the works along the same lines? The short answer is no. I mean, I've got I've got another idea for a hard sci-fi story like that, another kind of rigidly accurate sci-fi, but um, it's it's not really formed well enough yet. I've got a good setting, but I don't have a good story to take place in it. Um, the my next book, I'm already working on it now. I'm most I'm mostly done with the first draft term, about three quarters done with it. Um, is a more traditional sci-fi. It has aliens and faster than light travel and stuff like that, but done my own way. I come up with this tiny core little bit of made-up physics, and I'm like, okay, this is the BS, and then everything everything else like that that is relevant, that's the made-up technology, stems from this one core little bit of made-up physics. Your one gimme. Yeah, my one gimme. And also, I made it so that that physics isn't in conflict with any real physics. Um, so, I'm assuming that you have screened the movie? Uh, yes, I've seen the movie, and I'm, I was blown away. I'm, I'm really excited. I can't, I can't wait till it comes out. They, so, you're, you're happy with their interpretation of it? Oh, yeah. I think they did a fantastic job. I'm really excited. Oh, uh, that's good to hear. It was like, uh, it, it's, it's really surreal to watch something that you invented, like, then just like... Oh, here, here's a you know hundred million dollar movie we made out of it. Let us know what you think. <laughs> <laughs> so let's. Uh, I'd like to to hear what what happened. This is Jay, by the way. Um, Hi, Jay. 
I'm, you know, it's like you want you hit the lottery in essence. And to me, it's really fun to think about. Like, what was the process where they contacted you? Like, tell us about how it unfolded and when you found out. You know what? Someone's going to bend a hundred million dollars to interpret my words. Well, it, it was weird because it wasn't there. There was no specific moment when you pop the champagne. It's just kind of eases into it, just bit by bit. You know, they come and they buy the the option, the the film option which means they're securing exclusive ability to buy the film rights, right? That's the first thing they do. And so they come and do that. They give you a small amount of money to uh, get the exclusive option. And then, and then you're like, that doesn't mean they're going to greenlight the movie. Studios buy film options like, you know, like you buy candy. It's just they'll just buy something to say, like, we might someday consider making this, so we want to secure the rights now. Still, it's like, it, they, they buy hundreds of options for every movie they actually make. I mean, so when that happened, you're like, oh, okay, it's a nice little bonus, and it's cool to think of, like, Hollywood wanting to make a movie, but it's no big deal. Then they then they got Drew Goddard on board to, to write the screenplay, and then things are – and originally he was set to direct, and it, it – it's like, oh, well, this is interesting. Now it's now it's not just like purely speculative. There's actually a, a, a Hollywood veteran writing a screenplay for it. Okay, that's interesting. Still doesn't mean they're gonna, you know, yeah. And, and then just like bit by bit, then it's like, okay, well, Drew Goddard left, but then, um, and Matt Damon comes on, and then then suddenly it's like much more serious. And then Ridley Scott comes on to to direct, and you're like, whoa, if you've got Ridley Scott and Matt Damon, they're very likely to greenlight it now. And then eventually you get the call to say, like, okay, they're activating the contract and sending you the money. And then you're like, okay, they're, they're actually doing this. <laughs> so um, from what you're saying, it sounds like they didn't consult you while they were shooting or anything. Uh, well, they did. Um, uh, so Drew talked to me a lot while he was writing the screenplay. He didn't have to, but they, they, he chose to. Uh, which was cool. And then uh, after he finished the screenplay, he sent it to me for analysis, uh, well, whatever, uh, feedback. And he made some changes based on my feedback and ignored other things, which is fine. It's his screenplay. And then um, while they were filming, they did invite me out to the set to watch just to be an observer. But it was, it's in, it, they filmed it in Budapest, and I'm not a very comfortable flyer, so I, I didn't want to go. <laughs> so they, Budapest uh, is like Mars then? Is that what... <laughs> yeah, it may as well be. I mean, that's, that's So that's, you were worried about the radiation right in Budapest. Is that the, that was the problem? Yes, not that's the it, yeah. <laughs> Not quite, not quite. Um, also, I would get uh, questions filtered through multiple intermediaries from Ridley Scott, and these deeply technical questions, and I'd answer them and filter them back up. But it was really cool because I, I was like, oh, wow, he's really he really cares about the scientific accuracy, too. He's asking these deep, detailed scientific questions, and I'm like, ah... That's what I like to see. All right, wait, no, I are you, are you going? Are you going? I gotta go. I gotta go to a, a little uncomfortable place now. <laughs> okay. All right. So I can't help but say this because everybody's thinking it. So Ridley Scott had this terrible movie called Prometheus, in my opinion. Did, okay. Were you scared? Did you say anything? Was there, <laughs> do you think that he learned his lesson? Like, talk to me about that. Uh, I wasn't scared at all because. Um, I had all I had read the screenplay that Drew made. If you look at the if you if you look at Ridley Scott movies that you think are great and and look at the ones that you, or, or go go the other way look look at the ones that you don't like. I think you'll find what they all have in common is they all had bad scripts. Okay, so that's a, that's yeah, a fair point. And I, and I guess you know your point is hey look the screenplay was solid. The director's going to follow the screenplay and he you know he's good at well a lot of directors don't but Ridley always does. I mean he he follows the screenplay very the screenplay he's given he tends to follow it pretty closely yep. because you know 
And so if you give him a bad screenplay, he will make a, a cinematically stunning, beautiful presentation of that bad story. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a very accurate description. <laughs> well, like, you know, look, the, the upside is he's also been involved with some of my favorite movies. So, I, you know, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, he's, he's basically, I mean, for a movie to be good, a whole bunch of things all have to be good. Yeah. And if any one of them is bad, it sinks the whole thing. Um, I think you'll find if you look at uh, you know previous Ridley Scott movies, it's not the directing or the cinematography that's bad. <laughs> so when you were watching the, the movie, so now here here we are. Here's here's a guy that put an enormous amount of time into writing something that you care about, and you know that the movie was done. And you're walking into the theater, and you sit down, and the light, the movie starts. Like, what was that moment like? Like, tell me what your impressions oh. were when you started to see it come to life. It was just like uh, I, I was kind of hyperventilating a little bit, <laughs> and uh, I was just like, "Okay, here we go." Like first scene in the movie, it just shows like you know Mars and space, and I'm like, "Oh my god, this is this is actually <laughs> this like is happening. happening! I'm actually <laughs> seeing this." And I was like choked up for the first five minutes or so of the movie because it's like, "Well, yeah, that's I created that character. Oh, I wrote that line. I yeah, I you know this is all like my my stuff just coming." to life and then after about five or ten minutes i was just into the movie yeah. you know it's just like an, watch enjoying an entertaining movie <laughs> you so know? were you surprised by the ending no did you like matt, matt damon as your lead character oh yeah i think he absolutely nailed the character of watney i think he's just absolutely perfectly nailed um, the way I imagined Watney. All right, Andy Weir, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Andy. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious, and I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have a theme this week. Oh, yes. And the theme is lightsabers. No, I'm just no, kidding. No, 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 my God. Awesome. We'd all get I lose. that now. The theme is, the theme is Mars. Okay. No, the theme is good. Mars. I've, which I've is, heard of that. Yeah. I think I know most things about Mars. Let's you go. Think so. You think I know. so? Well, like well let's find out. Here we go. Four items. Because it is, you know, it's Mars. So there's four items. You ready? Item number one. There have been 40 missions to Mars, not including flybys, 40 missions to Mars, but less than half, 18, were successful. Item number two. The length of a day on Mars is almost the same as Earth at 24 hours and 37 minutes. Item number three. Mars has two small moons, Phobos and Deimos, which are likely captured asteroids. And item number four, Mars essentially is made of two parts, the southern highlands and the northern lowlands, the latter forming 42% of the surface and likely resulting from a massive impact that tore off half the planet. Kara, go first. All right, here we go. 40 missions to Mars, not including flybys, but less than half, 18 were successful. Well, not including flybys, there are way less than 18 rovers on Mars. Why else? And there were a lot of failures by everybody but the U.S. Duh, 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 duh. The length of a day on Mars is almost the same as Earth at 24 hours and 37 minutes. 
Mars has two small moons, Phobos and Deimos. Is that how you say it? Deimos, yeah. Deimos, which are likely captured asteroids. That sounds right. Mars essentially is made of two parts, the southern highlands and the northern lowlands. The latter forming 42% of the surface and likely resulting from a massive impact that tore off half the planet. Tore off half the planet. That sounds severe. The the length of a day on Mars, also called a soul. See, this is another issue. I am very close to a lot of people that work at JPL and were working during Curiosity Souls. So I should definitely know this because I remember them having weird sleep schedules. So I think the length of the day is correct. And I think that the moons are correct. I remember Phobos Grunt was an attempt to reach Phobos um, by the Russians that ended up in the Pacific Ocean. But 40 missions to Mars whew, and... Mars being made up of two parts, the Southern Highlands and the Northern Lowlands. I should know this, but I don't. I think I'm going to say that Mars being essentially made of two parts, Southern Highlands, Northern Lowlands, latter forming 42% of the surface, lightly resulting from a massive impact that tore off half the planet. There's so much stuff in there that one of those things could be wrong. So I'm going to say that that is the fiction. Okay, Evan. 40 emissions to Mars. That seems like a, a, a large number, but as Kara alluded to, not all certainly were successful or launched by NASA. Other countries, other organizations have also launched things to Mars. Um, less than half, 18, were successful. I, I buy that. Certainly the, the metric mix-up is perhaps the most famous of the failed Mars missions. <laughs> they, they didn't go with the metric measurement of some calculation for the uh, for the entry, and it lost it. So, oops, um, should have had a slide <laughs> rule, I guess, or something. The uh, length of the day on Mars, almost the same as Earth, 24 hours, 37 minutes. Uh, Mars has similar features to Earth in several ways. This is, I think, one of them. So I think that one is going to be right. The small moons, likely captured asteroids. Something I think is correct. I know one of them is kind of a, has a very low gravity and I think is like several little, not little, but chunks of pieces of an asteroid, if I recall. And it just, it's low gravity kind of keeps it together. And so I think that one's right, which is going to mean that the last one, uh, two parts Southern Highlands, Northern Lowlands, I think that one's incorrect. I think that one's the fiction. It's more likely an east-west hemisphere uh, of some sort. So I think that one's the fiction. Okay, Bob. Okay, uh, 40 missions sounds uh, sounds a little high to me, uh, but the ratio of, of failure sounds right, and the number 18, for some reason, sounds accurate as well. So I'm going to go with that one as, as, uh, as science. Uh, the length of the day, I don't know why. I don't know this, and it seems to me I would know if it was that damn close to the, to an Earth Day, what that? So my initial choice was that that one was going to be fiction, but I'm not sure now. Um, the, the moons captured asteroids, yeah, that makes sense. Um, although I'm not 100 percent sure that they were. It's been confirmed that they were captured, but I, but I think that's that's the consensus. Uh, but I think I'm going to go with uh, with Karen Evan. I just think that um, I know there's a dichotomy on the surface in terms of like where the active volcanoes used to be. And I think the South has more of them, but I've I've never come across anything that that said that uh, half the planet was torn torn off. And if it were, I think the the scarring on the surface would still be evident to this day. And I, and I don't think it's evident at all. So if you removed half the planet, what does that mean? I mean, 
unless it was a completely catastrophic collision, um, it would just recoalesce. And so, um, that, yeah, that's just not making sense to me in many ways. Uh, so I'm going to say the, the two part Mars is fiction as well. And Jay. Yeah, surprisingly, there there has been a, a ton of missions to Mars, and uh, I totally agree with the, this first news item that that a ton of them have failed. The length of the day, I absolutely agree with that one. This is why um, the people that research Mars, um, when when the when the lander lands, when, you know, the most recent lander lands, and they're following the day cycle, they slowly get off their the the day night schedule on Earth to keep up with the day night schedule on Mars. So that one is absolutely science. The third one about the two moons. I'm not a hundred percent sure where the two moons came from. I think it's it's I think it's interesting that that both of them would be asteroids, and that if num if the if question um, if item number four were true, then you'd think because the planet got ripped up that some of the, one of these moons would be you know one or more or both of the moons would be from the actual uh, Martian regolith. However, I'm going to say that, that that number three is science, the one about the moons. And I'm going to say that number four is fiction because there's something glaringly wrong with this. You say that there's the northern highlands and there's the southern highlands. And Steve, if you know anything about Highlander, there can be only one. So <laughs> that one is not science. That's the fiction. Amazing. All right. So you all agree that number four is the fiction. So we'll take these in order. Uh, item number one, there have been 40 missions to Mars, not including flybys, but less than half 18 were successful. You all think that one is science, and that one is science. Yay. Yeah. Now, so I've are seen- they satellites? Are all the rest satellites? Uh, no, Kara, tons of, tons of countries have, well, not tons, several countries have done missions to Mars. So there are orbiters, landers, yeah, orbiters, rovers. Yeah. yeah, there's lots of different ones. Oh, okay. Yeah, so the rest of were yeah, so orbiters, the ones that were yeah. landers were orbiters, a lot of orbiters. Gotcha. Lots of failures. Yeah, I the, guess that's what I meant by satellite. Yeah, the, the first right six there. were failures. Uh by Oof. mainly by the US the USSR had a string of failures. Yeah. Failures I know to, yeah, yeah, so that, that really pads the numbers. There's definitely some more successes towards the end, more failures towards the beginning, as you might suspect. Now there's a couple of different ways to count them up. So like another source had forty three with twenty being successes or 23 failures so you know partial yeah same there's a couple that are listed as success slash failure because they were partly successful but there was something about them that failed the couple are listed that way and they fail in every possible way they explode on you know launch they never got into orbit they got into orbit but then we lost contact the radio died they they couldn't control them they the crashed. computer became sentient and started screaming and they had to yeah. blow it up with a nuke <laughs> <laughs> The Mars 7 lander from the USSR had missed the planet, and now it's in solar orbit. They missed. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. They just missed. Whoops. What a, what a fundamental screw-up. Um, um, hey, boss, I'm very sorry. Um, it seems to have missed the planet. We're, you know, we're very sorry. What do you mean it missed the planet? It, it, we missed. We missed the entire planet. Like, yeah. does that happen? Like, it happens. Like, we, yeah, it well, clearly it is this, this the the uh, inches versus centimeters situation, Steve? Was that that one? No, that's so we had no, no, we had three failures in a row. Nineteen eighty eight, nineteen ninety eight to nineteen ninety nine. We had the Mars Climate Orbiter failed, Mars Polar Lander failed, and the Deep Space Two probes failed. All due to one ruler that was off by half. All an all lost that's on arrival. Insane. Yeah, just, <laughs> they got to and Mars and they just didn't work. But yeah, but we've had a string of successes. You know the. Uh, the last failure was also was a Russia-China one, the Phobos Grunt. Phobos Grunt, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. right. But then I- the, before – the, other than that, there's a string of successes. Mars Odyssey, 
uh, Mars Express Orbiter, Mars Exploration Rover, Spirit Opportunity. I mean, not, not just successes, Steve. So Mars Jared, Reconnaissance like, like Orbiter. Like phenomenal, phenomenal yeah. successes yeah, of how so, long I mean, the crafts have lasted. So we, we had a better. sky crane. Yeah. Just saying. Yep, we made right. a sky crane. Wicked. Oh, that but was also, so awesome. Guys, let's not forget about when we left Matt Damon on Mars. Yeah. That was rough. Oh. We'll talk about that next week. Yeah. He okay. deserves a <laughs> contaminated the moon to Mars. Yeah. yeah, right. He totally <laughs> contaminated that. Moon. All right. Let's go on to number two. The length of a day on Mars is almost the same as Earth at 24 hours and 37 minutes. You all think that one is science, and that one is... Science. Also science. Yep. Yeah, it's not I mean, I just one thing about it. Mars's day is just about the exact same length as the Earth's day, just by coincidence. So 20, I know this because hours. I was actually dating one of the engineers <laughs> right after Matt Curiosity. Damon? Yeah, I was dating Matt Damon. No, I was dating yeah. one of the engineers right after um, Curiosity landed. And so for, you know, quite a while, he was not it was only- sleeping. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I watched right. a documentary about it, and it's what I said that they, you know, for the first four or five days, everything is fine, but then the hours start yep. to add up. Goes out and of Next phase. thing you know, yeah, they're getting up at three in the morning to have their, and their day begins, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah, it slowly shifts over time, yeah. Sure it does. All right. This brings us to number three. We're down to the last two. Okay. Mars has two <laughs> small moons, Phobos Hold and Deimos, hand. which are likely yeah. captured asteroids. You guys all think this one is also science, and this one is the fiction. Oh! No, it no it's not. It is. Of course, Mars does have two small moons, Phobos and Deimos, but they bitch. are almost certainly not captured asteroids. No. Oh. I can't believe it. Oh. I, got, I got screwed up by the damn moon that I was so confident low gravity oh that people went before me and I'm like oh that one is definitely that was definitely the stealth one that I thought thought somebody might think that that it was so obvious that they might pick it but uh, yeah so the the reason we think that they're not captured asteroids is a couple things well first of all they don't have the composition that's typical of asteroids and second is that their their orbit is too circular uh, usually captured uh, asteroids don't have a circular orbit. So what are they? So they probably formed in orbit around Mars. Okay. Just the, um, uh, with, yeah, with, wow. the, with the rest of we the chunk. Yeah. Talk about confirmation bias. And they, or they might have been kicked up <laughs> yeah. when something hit Mars. But the other thing is they said that Mars doesn't have enough of an atmosphere through drag to make their orbit circular. So okay. that's why they think they must have formed in a circular orbit all right guys i'm gonna say this right now for anybody who is listening who is a pro at wikipedia editing because i just googled it and the first line in the moons of mars wikipedia entry is the moons of mars are phobos and deimos which are both thought to be captured asteroids oh Oh, hey that's literally the first line in wikipedia so maybe somebody needs to go in and edit this entry or maybe steve's wrong <laughs> but I trust you so much more than I trust Wikipedia. True. Is that bad? Yeah. I have a reference. I have a good, source. good. And yeah. their source so, so is Kara. John P. Mills' Mars Moon Mystery. What was it? When was that written? <laughs> Sounds very yeah. sketchy. Yeah. Written, written in 1943. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the Canale so theory is still probable. So this brings us to number four, which is totally uh, cool. Mars totally surprising. Of two oh. parts, the southern highlands and the northern lowlands, the latter forming 40% of the surface and likely resulting from a massive impact that tore off half the planet. So yeah, so just I like know the Earth, Mars had a massive impact during the late heavy bombardment. And a billion years ago? 
Yeah, billions of years ago. And uh, instead of forming one big moon like with the Earth, it probably just reco- you know, just melted. And so the northern part of the northern hemisphere of Mars uh, doesn't have as many craters as the southern part does because the northern half of the planet basically melted and then resolidified. It's also it's more yeah. oblong. It's 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 not it de- it departs more from a sphere than does the southern hemisphere, hmm. and it, oh. it's it's low. It's a little bit lower, you know, and also the the crust is gone. So like in the southern hemisphere, you have a normal layer. The crust is crust. gone. Yeah, it's gone. It was what? just like really? think about half the, the the northern half of Mars being destroyed Holy and then just shit. melting into this goo it and got solidifying scalped? again. It's totally different <laughs> than the southern hemisphere. It is like Whoa. two halves put pieced together that they look nothing alike. Their crust is different. The thickness is different. Their shape is different. Their height is different. Their cratering is different. It, I'm never going there. Wow. Look, look I, at I pictures just of Mars. It up. It's yeah. so severe that they call it the Martian dichotomy. The Martian dichotomy. That's what it's called. <laughs> oh, yep. The I Martian dichotomy. It. I'm shocked that I never even heard about it. I know. Me it's neither. amazing. I had heard about it. So I knew I was going to use that one because it's, Ugh, I didn't think we talked about mean. it on the show. Yeah, but the Mars so dichotomy. Tricky. Wow. Very mean that you, Steve. that you do. So, stuff. Steve, I was certain, absolutely <laughs> certain that I heard a little lament in your voice. Me like too. Totally, totally swept me. Me too, and, Jay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, Faked you out. But when when he was telling us about the uh, the the moons though, when he was reading that, I detected a nice a nice little lilt in his voice. Like <laughs> I was thinking, oh crap, we're screwed. So that was a fun one. Yeah. Yeah, for you. It hurt a little. It hurt. Hey, you know, you do a deep dive on any, you know, object in the solar system. There's a lot of people, you know, astronomers know a lot of facts about these planets. Mars in particular, Mars Mars is the most studied object in the solar system outside of the Earth. Hmm. Uh, Or planet. Or the moon? Definitely planet. Well, maybe even the moon. I mean, we have sent, successfully sent, you know, 20. Uh, or 18, 18. 18 oh, yeah. probes oh, we, to Mars. You know, that's true. How many Apollo missions were there? Yeah, but how many Seven, probes and satellites 16. have sent yeah, to true. the moon? Yeah, that's, that's true. true. That's true. Oh, we've totally contaminated the moon. But we have <laughs> oh, rovers sure. on Mars for years. It's I don't know. Dinos- it's dinosaur definitely dinosaur the most studied the planet. I don't know if it's more studied than the moon. That might be a close call. We um we all made T-shirts for the JPL ice hockey team and um because oh. they're called the rovers. And on the back, they say really nerdy things like, Conquer your curiosity, or that's the spirit, or sojourn <laughs> to the goal. Like, it's really bad. Nice. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty nerdy. Nerds. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, Evan, we have a quote this week. We do. Sent in to us by listener Les Firth of Melbourne, Australia. Thanks, Les. And to anyone else, we, we enjoy reading the quote suggestions you send in. Come on, keep sending them in. They are all great. Wish we could use them all, but we can't. Uh, but occasionally we do. Um, here's what he said in his email. Max Tegmark on Sam, on Sam Harris's Waking Up podcast stated a brilliant quote, which I just had to look up. It turns out it was from Richard Feynman. No surprise it was so good. And here it is. I'd rather have questions that can't be answered than answers that can't be questioned. Oh, I like Ooh, that it. That one's great. Dynamite. Love it. Sums it up perfectly. Short, sweet, to the point. Very nice. That is Richard Feynman. That's appropriate because as we record this, do you guys know what day it is today? It's yes. National yes. Podcast it's, Day. It's, it's the 30th anniversary of Howard Stern being fired from WNBC. It's, <laughs> it's, anti, it it's anti-blasphemy day. Oh, that too. 
or it's anti 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 Jesus. It's yeah. So it's a it's an international day where we get we are trying to get rid of anti blasphemy laws. Get rid of anti blasphemy laws. Oh, the good. But it's also it's also International Podcast Day. Hashtag podcasting. Yep, September thirtieth, twenty fifteen. Cool. We're podcasting on International Podcast Day. I got to go back awesome. to looking up what these days in history are. I only know are that. Kind of, I miss these. People right. were using the hashtag all over Twitter today. Cool. Pretty cool. So, yeah. So, uh, answers that can't be questioned, that's blasphemy, right? That's the basically the essence of blasphemy. So you can't question these beliefs. Uh, oh, but, yeah. of course, everything has to be able to be questioned. So, And there are, there are countries in the world where it's like against the law to, to disagree about Something you have to not With believe your punishments yeah, for, for that. Crazy. Oh my gosh, crazy. it's a it's a it's Great a violation chaos. of basic human rights. Yep, mm-hmm. it it's really medieval. is archaic. Needs to go away. Yep. So this is it. Agreed. So thank you all for joining me this week. May the force Thanks be with you all. Thank you. And until next week, this is your skeptic's guide to the universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.